Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are... However you're listening, welcome to America's Talk, radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by co-host Tobias Wright. All right, tonight, I go inside the huddle with Australian director Greg Eldridge. Greg was the youngest director ever to join the Young Artist Program at the Royal Opera House, Covent Garden in London, where he recently directed Verdi's La Traviata. Plus... It's our listener mailbag, and there's a letter just for Tobias. And in the two-minute drill, you get our hot takes on everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land. We've got a great show for you tonight. Tobias Wright, good to see you. It's great to see you, George Cedarquist. In uh, this, our new year. Here we are. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. We made it. Kind of. Your pillow must be soaked with saliva over the thought of the Chiefs. The Patrick Two Mahomes. Away. <laughs> it's crazy because I've been a fan my whole life, right, of the Chiefs. And they've a struggling franchise, but they've had years where they've been potentially great. And they always flounder in the playoffs. And I mean, like, dramatically have lost games. And so they won a playoff game for the first time in 25 years at home. My brother and my father were there in the, in the blizzard in Kansas City um, and were one win away from the Super Wait, Bowl. your brother and father were just at the game? Yeah, they went. They braved the blizzard and were they, they were about 10 rows from the top of the stadium. It was my brother's Christmas present to my dad. What a phenomenal Christmas present. <laughs> yeah. They were wearing about 10 layers of clothing, and they said that they couldn't feel their toes. So, <laughs> The 2019 tennis season begins with the sad news about the imminent retirement of Andy Murray. That's from Oliver. Oliver is going to send his healing hugs to the ailing Scott. Murray was in tears when he did that um, yeah. press conference. Well, that's his whole life. I mean, you put your whole life into a sport, and I think the the one undefeated opponent in all of sports is father time so Andy Murray succumbs to that and that's okay soon you know Nadal will succumb to it Serena will everyone and that's just how it is but they understand that they understand the sacrifices they make are for a finite it's just journey. like opera singers man just like opera singers you know I mean? as soon as you get that wobble time to put your shoes on stage and say thanks but no thanks yeah well that is why we do this show is that opera singers are athletes yes athletes who uh have trained for this long-term goal, but everything's finite. I mean, it's it doesn't last forever. The voice eventually breaks down. The body wears down, and we get it. That's why we're here. All right, let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Australian director Greg Eldridge was the youngest director ever to join the Young Artist Program at the Royal Opera House Covent Garden in London, where he's now directing Verdi's 
Chaviata. Greg's worked on over 40 productions in seven countries. He's on the board of Industry Body Stage Directors UK. So I was in London over Christmas and New Year's, and Greg and I sat down, we had a drink, and then we talked about why there are so few training programs for directors and what the micro-opera scene is like in London right now. Greg, thank you so much for being on our show. My great pleasure, and it's lovely to see you again. It's good to see you. Yeah, I we were talking just before we started about how long it's been, and it must be at least five or six years. You look totally different. <laughs> <laughs> you see, the travelling life doesn't do it for everyone, you know. I'm afraid I was a lot thinner and more attractive uh, when you met me first. You went to law school in oh, Australia. I did. How did you end up at the Royal Opera House? Yeah, um... By accident, I think. I think my mum would have preferred if I'd stayed at law school, to be honest. Um, but, uh, yeah, what a crazy ride it was. When I, um, when I finished school, uh, high school in Melbourne, which is where I'm from, my city in the southern part of Australia, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I knew that the two things I really liked were uh, performing, because I'd done a lot of that at high school, and uh, debating, like the law, uh, rules. Uh, I love that kind of stuff. And so not knowing what I wanted to do, I went to the only university in Australia where you could do both together. So I did uh, a double degree in performing arts and in law. Uh, It was the only place that I could go that uh, would let me do it. And I realised really soon in that I was skipping a lot of law lectures and spending more and more time in the theatre. And so I think that kind of uh, directed me to to where I ended up. Um, I formed a theatre company with uh, a very good friend of mine who was a wonderful actor and uh, also a composer and is now exploring the world and climbing mountains and things while also taking conducting studies uh, in the Netherlands. So another one of those annoying overachieving types. And we started uh, a theatre company doing straight theatre because that was what we knew. Um, And I love words. Words are my first and greatest love. And so we were doing a lot of... Classics, Uh, we wrote an adaptation of Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray, which we put on a couple of times and uh, that sold really well. And there was uh, an opera director uh, who I got in touch with who it seemed worked really similarly to me and it turned out we'd both been kind of trained in Strasbourg uh, method, for want of a better term, and I wrote to him and said, look, it sounds like you're amazing and I'd be really interested to find out what you do because I love music theatre. And he said, well, do you want to come and assist me on an opera? And I'd never worked on an opera, uh, but I really wanted to and I needed the money, so I said yes. And that must be 12 years ago and I've spent the majority of my time working in music-based theatre ever since. The way you got here at the Royal Opera House was through the Jenny Parker Young Artist Program. That's right. Um, so I I came over to the UK a long time ago now. Hopefully my accent still betrays my antivity and roots because I never want to lose that. Um, but I, I came over in the just before Christmas uh, in 2011. Um, I had, of course, you know, as you do, following a girl. Uh, we've been going out for less than a year, and she had family in Ireland. And she said, look, at the end of this time, you know, just to let me know, I'm, I'm going to go uh, over and find my family in Europe. 
And so I thought, well, if it's going to mean anything, I'd better work out a way to follow her. Uh, so I did. And I got a, a two-year visa to come over to the UK and found some work and sort of jobbed around for a bit. And uh, I'm still with her, by the way. So, um, you know, all's well that ends well. After that two years was up, I was about ready to go home. And I knew that the Young Artist Program at Covent Garden uh, was one of the best in the world for directors. And so I knew that I wouldn't get in. And so I thought, OK, I'll apply now. And they take a director every two years. I'll apply now. And then maybe they'll remember me in two years' time when I'm more experienced and I know more about what I'm doing. And they invited me to interview for it. And so I went along and it was one of those sort of classic cases of I've got nothing to lose. I've got a plane to catch in a month because I've got to go home because my visa's run out. So I'll just go along and because I didn't put too much pressure on it, I think I did okay in the interview. Um, and then they asked me to join uh, the program, which was amazing. And I can still remember uh, calling my mum um, waking her up at sort of three in the morning <laughs> because the time difference is 11 and a half hours or something back home uh, to tell her that um, I'd have to stay on in the UK because I was, I was on this program um, and it was just the most amazing thing. So that's how I got here, uh, which is a little roundabout. But uh... It's always roundabout. <laughs> Let me cut to mm. an article that you wrote on a blog post a couple years ago. That mm. article, by the way, is linked onto our website, operaboxscore.com. In this blog post, you rant, very articulately. <laughs> Thank you, that's kind. About the lack of training programs for directors. So mm. that was two years ago. Has mm. anything really changed since then? Well, I can still remember how I felt uh, when I was writing that, uh, because there, there was an organization that had just started here uh, in the UK called Stage Directors UK, which was a body that was set up kind of to be um, like an attachment to equity, which is what actors have, and to the fight, fight directors uh, union, which they have. It's not a union as such, um, but it's a body that was set up in order to advocate for and champion the rights of directors who work in live theatre um, because nothing existed. And they, I found out about it and so I joined and I joined their opera committee because it's something I've always felt really strongly about is the opportunities for young and emerging directors to get a chance to find out what it is and a chance to see how other people work. Uh, and so I joined that then and they asked me to write an article and I wasn't quite sure what to do. So I spoke to a number of my friends and I realised that we were all kind of in the same position. We were all young directors who were really keen, who had some education uh, and some love for what we were doing, but we weren't quite sure where to go because everything seemed to be run by uh, people who were over 50. Everyone seemed to be really keen on giving opportunities to young singers and young actors, but not so interested in young directors. And so we all got together at a pub, which is the only place that you can really do these things properly. And the thing that we discovered was that each of us had a story about how we'd wanted to try to break into something, to get an opportunity to train. Uh, a friend of mine even said to a company, look, you don't have to pay anything, I'll raise the money if you can just let me in so that I can see how it all works, so that I can learn on the job. And they said no, because they didn't have a structure in place for it. And so the real danger for us I think, is that if we don't 
fight for our right to be in a room as young and emerging artists, if we don't fight for our ability to come in and learn and observe and see how other people do things, we'll never work out how to do it. Um, and so, yes, I think to answer your question eventually, I think a lot has changed in the last couple of years here in the UK. Uh, the formation of this body, uh, there's a group here that started called SWOPRA, which is um, supporting women and parents in opera, which has an arm that works with directors uh, to work on things like advanced scheduling so that people who have childcare commitments or other work commitments can have some level of security. Uh, and the same for us. Uh, it supports directors who have children and families in being able to structure their work lives so that there is an opportunity to take care of, of other members of their family, um, whether that be children or whether they have caring responsibilities or, or other um, things they need to take care of. So I think there is a movement towards being more inclusive and being more open, but there's still a lot of work to be done, uh, especially in opera, I think, where there is still a general feeling that people either uh, don't know what a director does or think that anyone can do it. Um, and that's one of those preconceptions that I think we're starting to challenge. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. We're hanging out with director Greg Eldridge, who's currently working at the Royal Opera House in London. Greg, in that article, you say being a young director isn't as glamorous as being a young singer. After <laughs> all, a thought-provoking discussion of aesthetics or contemporary approaches to storytelling at your annual fundraiser won't hit the sponsors with quite the same impact as wheeling out a young soprano in a ball gown to sing yet another rendition of O Mio Babino Caro. How, how can we solve this problem? And the reason I ask you is that we rarely get directors on our show. How are we gonna solve this problem? Sure. Well, maybe we can start by not having quite so long sentences and blog posts. I'm sorry. Sometimes I get so carried away with a theme. My word, it's awful having your words written, uh, read back to you. Um, yes, how can we start? Um, I think that there is a difference between those who are seriously interested in opera as an art form and those who are interested in an entertainment which happens to take an operatic form. Recently I was awarded a, a Bayreuth uh, scholarship from the Wagner Society uh, of Victoria in Australia which allowed me to go to Bayreuth uh, and see all the shows in their season and uh, talk with some of the artists, some of whom I already knew from my work here at Covent Garden. And as part of that uh, scholarship, I've been invited to go and give a keynote speech to the Wagner Society when I'm next in Australia. And I think that is the kind of thing that needs to happen more often, where people who are given uh, scholarships or prizes or awards also have a responsibility to come back and talk about the art form in a serious and considered and measured way. Um, one of my favourite things, uh, which is a little bit nerdy, but I hope you don't mind me sharing. Don't judge. Um, uh, on long-haul flights, I often download um, podcasts and, and things, and uh, one that I've really enjoyed is the Wagner and the Wildness uh, series of lectures from the uh, Wagner Society of Washington, where they get musicologists and directors and dramaturgs to come together to talk about the really sort of serious minutiae of, in this case, Wagner's work. And it's in that minutiae that I think the really interesting nuances live. I think that in America, as in my native Australia, we're still a fairly young nation when it comes to the arts in general and opera in particular. 
And so a lot of the conversations that I think need to be had in our young nations have already been had some 200 years ago in Germany or France or, or Italy. There's this idea that, in America at least, we are still constructing opera. Hmm. We are still performing opera in productions that are based in the period the composer intends, whereas in, say, continental Europe, they are now deconstructing opera. Is that something that you saw when you went to Bayreuth? Is that something you've seen when you've worked in German houses? Hmm. Well, I, I'm really fortunate to have had the opportunity to have gone to a number of countries to look at the way things work, either through work myself or by saving as much money as I could when I was a young student uh, and taking myself off to Italy, for example. Uh, I went off to Florence to do some study at the European Academy of Florence. And I remember uh, really vividly um, I was doing what they called uh, an opera directing course, which was really uh, operatic, um, which was really Italian language and operatic traditions and study of libretti and, uh, and that sort of thing. And we were given an assignment by the uh, directing instructor to go away and make a set model. And we were given various acts. And I was given Act Two of Rigoletto, the uh, wonderful Verdi opera. And so I went away and I thought about what I thought the key themes were. And I thought, right, OK, we're set in Rigoletto's house where he has Gilda uh, living by herself, almost entrapped by the world that he's created for her. So I came up with what I thought was a a fun little minimalist set. There was nothing natural there because all the nature had been stripped away by Rigoletto as he'd stripped away all of uh, Gilda's natural sense of childhood, which I thought was, you know, quite a, a nice way to do it. And, you know, as a precocious 22-year-old, I thought, oh, what a clever idea, good on me. Um, and so I presented it with some little pride uh, to the class and the um, uh, professoressa said, look, it's very good, but, you know, the poor Australian, he's completely missed the point of, of the piece. And I was sort of crestfallen. And she said, well, it's a nice idea, but there's no tree. And that sort of seemed to be the end of the comment. And so I said, well, well, what do you mean there's no tree? I have this idea that there's no nature, that it's all been taken away from Gilda. And she said, ah, yes, but how is the audience to know when Gilda is sad unless she leans on the tree? And that was the way that they were teaching their, their stage directors, things steeped in this ultra-traditional sort of hearkening back all the way to comedia gesture. And it was a really good lesson for me because I learned that's something I didn't want to do. I wasn't interested in recreating the archaic, arcane gestures of 200 years ago. I was more interested in finding the human relationships between people. And so that's been what's informed my work. And I think that, increasingly, that's the kind of work that's getting made in our young countries. Um, certainly, I know what you mean when you say there's, like, a traditional, almost conservative bent to the way that productions are, are portrayed in the new world as opposed to old Europe. So, for example, in Germany, where there's a state subsidy and you can pay €8 Euros and get the best seats in the house on a Saturday night, a, a premiere of the season. And every man, woman and child has had the opportunity to do that for several generations. It's, it becomes ingrained in the culture that this is a thing worth valuing. And not only worth valuing, worth knowing about and worth having expertise in. And so when you have... You reach the age of 30 
in Berlin and you've seen 30 traviatas because that's what you've been brought up on, you're more likely to be interested in the nuances that come with a new approach as opposed to just seeing something that's set in the original period. And so I think that level of familiarity has something to do with the increasing levels of experimentation and of uh, trying new and sometimes alarming things uh, on the stage. I think there's also something to be said for the social history of the places where this particular, um, we often call it um, regie theatre, the idea of directors leading the aesthetics down a way, down a path that may not be what was originally intended. I think that for those countries that suffered under the fascism of the early part of the 20th century, there was a real desire from the regimes of that time to go back to ultra-traditional, ultra-conservative, uh, pure, unadulterated, hearkening back to the culture of yesteryear. And so when those regimes were overthrown, suddenly people rebelled against this idea of being presented with uh, naturalism, being presented with traditional stories. There was a real desire to break free from the shackles of that kind of really imperialist, traditionalist um, traditions. And so I think that, especially in Germany, there's a real sense of wanting to experiment and be the new wave of theatre because the old wave represents such a dark chapter in national history. Those same traditionalists, you know, like Walter Felsenstein, who was running the Komische Oper in the now former East Berlin, they would be very surprised to see what someone like Barry Kosky is now doing at the, at the Komische Oper. Let's shrink the conversation a little bit. We're talking to Greg Eldridge, by the way, Australian and director of opera currently working at the Royal Opera House in London. In Chicago, we have what we call storefront opera. You might call it micro opera. These are opera companies that run on budgets of thirty dollars to $50,000. They do shows in venues of 50, 75, 100 people. What is that scene like here in London? And how does it exist in the ecosystem of opera in this city? Well, that's a fabulous question. Um, and I think it's a really timely one as well, because in London at least, I've only been here five or six years, but even in that time I've noticed the almost exponential growth of small-scale operatic companies that are seeking to take especially opera and other music-based theatre out of the big theatres and either take them to the people or allow the people to experience them in a new way. And sometimes that means found spaces, sometimes that means non-traditional spaces, but there's also a really strong tradition in the UK of what are called pub theatres, uh, where you can get a pint and a packet of crisps out the front and then go back in after interval to see the second act of full-length operas. And sure, these operas may not have choruses and they may not have actors or supernumeraries, but what they do have is the benefit of allowing an audience to experience the magic of acoustic music making right up close. Uh, indeed, there's a company that's quite prolific uh, in London which is called Opera Up Close, and they specialise in touring and presenting things in venues which are non-traditional so that an audience gets an opportunity to have an aria metres away from them. And there's something really interesting about that. It's 
an opportunity for audiences to see the effort that goes into making these pieces uh, live, which, of course, you don't see when you're right at the back of the balcony in the third section. Um, but it also allows the stories to be told in a much more intimate way. And, of course, there are pieces that lend themselves to that, pieces like Tosca or Cosi, where you've only got a small number of primary principles and the stories are quite emotionally charged. But it also works remarkably well for bigger pieces that can be pared down. Um, pieces like Giovanni, for example, which are quite large in terms of the scope of the piece and in the number of principles required, but which are really um, small-scale vignette scenes that allow you to really in invest yourselves uh, with the characters. So I think that what that's meant, talking about the framework of opera in this city, is that the larger elite-level houses have become so aware that this is where the new generation of audiences are going to be built and is the breeding ground for people to have an interest in the art form, which will take them from the pub in Islington in North London to Covent Garden WC2. I think it's a remarkable opportunity for audiences to be able to experience up close the emotional power of performers who are feet away from them, experiencing these enormous emotions, being carried away by the music, and to then want to say, I want to see this done on a bigger scale. I'm interested in seeing the social impact that this has in a way that can only be represented by large-scale theatre. And I think for me in particular, as a director who enjoys working on a large scale and has had the privilege of being able to work with choruses and with actors and with a large number of people on a stage, I can fill out a world that exists in the imaginations of people who experience this up-close opera. And I think one feeds naturally to the other, and all of the big theatres now are starting to feel that. I feel sometimes that the challenge that opera houses pose to themselves is how do we interest a new uh, generation of audience in this art form? And I think that's the wrong way to start. I think that this kind of theatre will always be of interest to certain people. It may not be to everyone's interest. Uh, I'm not particularly interested in hockey. I will, however, pay money and go and see the football. And that doesn't mean that people who play hockey should say, how do we change our sport in order to appeal to people who don't like hockey? Because you'll never get there. There's something intrinsically valuable in hockey in the same way there's something intrinsically valuable in the operatic art form. And I think that what we're doing by taking these pieces out of the theatres is we're allowing people to see the true meanings, the true passions, the true emotions that drive these pieces in a way that isn't hidden behind the artifice of large, international, grand, gilded, staged opera. It's a great point to end on, Greg, because we love sports on this show. It is so good to see you again after a couple years. Thank you so much for being on the show. No, my great pleasure. And uh, next time you come around, the beer's on me. We open up our listener mailbag, and wouldn't you know, there's a letter just for Tobias. That's next on Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. 
Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Opera Class. Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us tonight on Opera Box Score. George Cedarquist with my co-host Tobias Wright. How, how was your New Year's, man? I survived. Okay. No, it's good. Okay, so we I hosted a party uh, with my girlfriend, and the, we didn't want to go out. We didn't want to buy really ex, uh, expensive tickets, but what we did was there was a requirement for the party, and that was that you wear a onesie. <laughs> <laughs> and so everyone, everyone at the party followed the rules, and we just it was a bunch of people walking around wearing onesies, so it was a lot of fun. Wow. We made it to midnight. Okay, that's good. <laughs> How was that's yours? Good. That's good. Just good. I was in London, and... Drink. Uh, Hanging out with a friend yep. of mine. Um, we went out for a, just a, a fantastic dinner. And then we went, on New Year's Day, we went to, um, to the movies. And we saw Holmes and Watson. Is this is this with uh, Will Ferrell? Will Ferrell and John C. <laughs> Riley. Yeah. How was it? It was really bad. That's it? <laughs> yes. There's like one really funny joke on it when um, it's a long sequence where they are um, sending a telegram to these women that they're in love with, and then they send via telegram like pictures of their junk. Oh God! And John C. Riley says to the telegraph operator, he says, "Get the banger and the beans." Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, speaking of telegrams. That's my segue into the next one. Yes, yes, let's go. That's one of our listeners. This is Min. From Boston, Min writes to us, I have a question for the singers on your show. When they sing a role not in Italian, French, or Russian, do they try to learn the foreign language? I I assume the singers do. But in an interview I recently came across, my favorite singer, Peter Mattei, mentioned that he did not speak any of the languages he sang in. His Italian diction was so good when he sung Rodrigo from Verdi's Don Carlo... Don Giovanni or Figaro from Rossini's The Barber of Seville. How could a person remember the libretto without knowing the language? Thanks again, Min, for your question. And of course, all of our listeners can submit questions to us through our email address, operaboxscore at gmail.com, or on Twitter at operaboxscore. So, Toby, you've sung in Spanish, Italian, German, and French. Mm-hmm. Please. Don't tell me that you speak all of those languages. <laughs> I would love to lie to you and, and say that I do. Um, so, Min, that's a great question. And I think a lot of audience members, especially if you're new to opera, um, when you go, you wonder, you know, do you know those languages? And I've been asked that question um, numerous times in my brief career. Here's what I will say. I think in a general sense and as a general rule, I don't think it's appropriate for an opera singer uh, to ever get on a stage and sing a word that they don't know. Um, Because the smartest person in the room isn't the conductor, it's not the singer, it's not the director. The smartest person in the room is the audience. 
um, and you can't lie to your audience. So first and foremost, as a general rule, you should never sing a word that you don't know. Um, it makes it really hard to act if you don't know what you're saying. Uh, but so, see, so many people do yeah. it. Yeah, and so I agree with you. If you're, there's, there's truth to the libretto. There's truth to the action. One of the things that I do when I'm preparing a score, so I would say I, I'm definitely not fluent in Italian. That would be a lie. What I am is I'm functional, and that is to say that I understand when I'm uh, looking at a libretto or looking at a score, there's so much repetition of the vocabulary in opera that at this point it you recognize phrases you recognize words so much so that i hardly ever use a dictionary this is between different operas librettists are using the same types of words correct and especially you know when you when you translate a mozart opera and when you especially when you uh, go through and you're looking at the the recitative you the patterns are so similar and the form is so similar that after doing it for years, you really develop an understanding of the text and how Mozart specifically wants to set it. Doing Puccini or doing Verdi or Rossini, those are a little bit different. Um, and I have found there have been times that I've done shows where it really <laughs> challenged my understanding of Italian. And, and that's because sometimes different composers will use different dialects in their libretto or it'll be from even an older dialect or a different regional dialect and i'm only speaking about italian here just so i'm really clear um to the so much so that it's different that you you're like wait do it i know that that looks like italian but i don't know any of those words and i don't know what that sentence is and it's because to fit a libretto um and to fit the the patterns of speech you know they're they're dicing and and splicing and mixing and matching and it it really can become kind of difficult but it's a really fun puzzle to put together um, you're not alone when you're doing it right. You've got language coaches, you've got prompters at the yeah. big houses helping you out. Yeah, so you do a lot of individual and remote work as an opera singer. Um, and it takes a tremendous amount of self-discipline, especially if you don't speak a language. Now, if I spoke Italian fluently, I would just be like, all right, great, you know, here's my score. I don't have to think about it. But I don't, as I said. And so for me, it's that process. For the first thing that I'm going to do remotely is word for word translate the libretto. And then I'm going to do, if it's available, I'm going to find a poetic translation as well. Um, and that's going to help me put context to what I've translated. And are you going to a resource like Nico Castell, for example? I, do, I, I only use Nico Castell for poetic translations. Um, when it comes to word for word translations, what he has sometimes isn't really accurate. Um, they're, it's, they're tremendous resources. And Nico Castell, those catalogs have um, International Phonetic Alphabet, the IPA, and that helps you with pronunciations of, of things. Castell was on the staff at the Metropolitan Opera for years, like in the 60s, 70s, mm-hmm. 80s, and basically single-handedly translated... Uh, everything. The, I mean, it's tremendous, the volume yeah. of work that he has. And it's so, a really nice birthday present. It really is. And I didn't mean to poo-poo on it, but I try not to trust his words as the word-for-word translation. But when I do a poetic translation, boom, that. Another thing that I help that helps my mindset um, in performance is I get a critical edition score of every show that I do. And in the critical edition score, all the stage directions that were intended by the composer, Verdi, Puccini, whatever... Um, those are in there in Italian. And when you translate those, you can really gain a lot of insight into who your character is, where they're supposed to be, how they're supposed to be moving. Um, and so you have an intimate knowledge then by this point, and this is before you've even started learning the music, 
I know my libretto word for word, I have a poetic translation, and I know all of my stage directions in the score. You're armed with a lot of information. And when you do this enough in shows, and then you get to come back to it, you're fluent in that show. You're not fluent in that language. Again, this is from someone, myself, who's functional in Italian, but not fluent. Um, now, you mentioned coaches. At a university level, um, at a young artist level, and at, you know, in the professional level, everywhere you go, there are coaches who are going to help a singer prepare their languages um, so that they don't sound like fools. And oftentimes, this is with the understanding that you're not working with fluent speakers, especially at a university level. The coaches are not native speakers at the university level, but they might be at a big opera house. Yeah, well, the, you know, actually, I will say that in my master's degree at Northwestern, you know, I worked with the coaches there. Every one of them spoke languages fluently um, and tremendous assets to the learning that goes on at a university level. You know, there's uh, Italian speakers, French speakers. My uh, one of my professors that I used for to, to play with all of my lessons when I was getting my master's degree was a Russian native speaker. Um, and those are tremendous assets to universities. And then when you when you get to a professional level, you know, you're working with Italian pianists and conductors or you're working with French conductors. And so I've I've been fortunate to at almost every professional gig I've gone to have a native speaker in the show, in, in at least the language of the show that we were performing. Um, and at the university level. So for me, I had to study a year of Italian and a year of German. And so those were intensive five-credit courses that I took every day for an entire year. And that was part of my undergraduate degree. Um, I didn't have to study French, so my understanding of French isn't foundational. It's phonetic, meaning I can read it Yikes. and sound really French, but I don't know the language. Mm -hmm. And so I would, so that, you know, when I've done French roles, um, the preparation has actually taken me quite a bit longer um, because I know that there's more work to be done in sounding French because I don't have a foundational knowledge of it. And so for me, that makes it a little more difficult. Um, the other people that are helping, as Oliver pointed out to us in the pre-show meeting, is that, you know, there's composers, the good composers that are part of the standard canon. When they're setting the words to music, they're naturally going to put the stresses on the correct syllables. The other side of the argument, of course, Toby, is that you have artists like Pavarotti and Callas who only sang roles in Italian and French. Well, and like one of my favorite, yeah, you have people that avoid it. But you know what? To me, that's artistic integrity. If you're a native speaker of Italian, Pavarotti, singing Don Jose is going to be, and if you listen to sing him sing French, he butchers it. And guys like Fritz Wunderlich, I mean, that used to be the style. If you were from Germany, you're going to sing, I, there are wonderful recordings of uh, Fritz Wunderlich singing famous Italian arias in German. And why wouldn't you? You know, that's his native tongue. And, and those composers, you know, especially Mozart, wrote in so many different languages because they spoke them all. Um, and their librettists spoke different languages, you know. Um, you get into today's world, and it's kind of interesting because I think of New American Opera. I, you know, I would argue, and I hate to say this, that text painting now, there's less emphasis on that. So some of the phrasing that we see in New American Opera, I really don't feel like it does singers a lot of favors. But you go sing, like I, I mentioned the recitative for, 
for Mozart. You sing that and you're like, oh my God, that was a voice lesson. He knew exactly how to get my voice to move to say this text the way it needed to be said. And with the right amount of syllables and with the right amount of pausing. And back in the day with performance practices, you had a pojaturas that we didn't think about. They were there. But we can we have that information now. We have, you know, Baron writer scores that show you where those things should have happened. And when you do the nuance that's involved in a uh, recitative in a Mozart opera, you're like, oh my gosh, I sound like I'm fluent in Italian. You talk about these composers speaking all these languages. This is why all the best directors are coming out of Switzerland. Those people in Switzerland, they grow up speaking French, Italian, German, and English. And from a directorial point of view, to answer Min's question, is that the reason the languages are important to directors is not really about understanding the text, because we can look all that up. It's so that you can communicate with your singers and with the administration and with designers in their native language. And it's amazing how much more gets done and how much more respect you have Mm -hmm. when you are doing those uh, conversations in languages that you have a working survival knowledge of. Well, and from a singer's point of view, the, the most deflating thing that I've ever had happened to me in a professional uh, setting was realizing that the director of a show didn't know the text as well as the singers. Um, and this was an Italian, it was Madame Butterfly. Um, and we had an Italian conductor. We had native Italian speakers in the show. I'd done the show multiple times. I'm familiar with the text intimately. And then realizing at any given time that your colleagues don't have the same amount of preparation or that they're not native speakers, it's deflating because you're like, wow, you faked your way into this. And that's so, that's not what you want. Again, the smartest person in the room is the audience. And you can't direct or perform a show if you don't know the text. And so I I guess the, the long answer to this question, Min, is that you have to know the words. You have to. And that's an integral part of being a performer and a singer. Um, and the other thing, too, it's a really fun exercise. How cool that, you know, for me, grew up in rural Kansas. How cool that my work is diving into language that's hundreds of years old that was set by these master composers and I my attention to detail is bringing to life their intent. And I think that's an incredible privilege as a performer. Min, thanks for writing in. All of our listeners can write into us, operaboxscore at gmail.com or on Twitter at operaboxscore. You can even post your question on our Facebook page. The Disabledist is long this week. That's next on America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like Tanner 
Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendantin Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in, the two-minute drill. Everything you need to know that happened in Opera Land over the past week. Opera Group Peak Performances has announced a groundbreaking venture with Catapult Opera, the new chamber opera company led by Neil Gorin, the internationally acclaimed former artistic director of Gotham Chamber Opera. He's also a conductor. This ongoing collaboration launches in fall 2020 with the world premiere of Robert Wilson's staging of Giancarlo Minotti's Amal and the Night Visitors. Seattle Opera has opened the doors of its new glass-clad $60 million headquarters at the Seattle Center. The 105,000-square-foot building is designed to allow people to take a peek behind the scenes, with walls of glass allowing the public to see performances and lectures in progress and a viewing garden where people can watch those at work in the costume shop. Hamburg State Opera has put out a call for refugees to join the chorus of Verdi's Nabucco. The production is to be directed at a distance by Kirill Sebrebrenikov, who has been held under house arrest in Russia for the past 18 months over alleged fraud charges. Those were triggered by his criticisms of the Putin regime. Rachel Willis-Servinson, a friend of our show, has posted an emotional video on her Facebook page about her recent weight loss program, saying, quote, As we start the year, many of us have made New Year's resolutions. A popular one is to lose weight. Last year, weight loss, losing 70 pounds, was a big part of my journey. Opera singers may have a reputation for being overweight, but the industry offers pressures singers, especially women, to be slimmer. And though, although I felt pressure to slim down, ultimately my motivation needed to come from within and not an external source. A new televised singing contest in China that showcases the vocal prowess of classically trained singers is not only taking the country by storm, but fueling interest there in Chinese and Western opera. It's created and produced by Hunan Television and a popular internet TV content provider. It's called Super Vocal, or Shangru Renshin. And it sets out to introduce classical opera and contemporary musicals to a wider audience. Since going on air in early November of 2018, it's the fifth most watched reality TV show in China. Over to the disabled list, Rolando Villazon, the Mexican-French tenor, whose health has been unsteady, has been ordered to rest until March 20 following surgery for a gastroenterological complaint. It's so bad, even I can't say it. Soprano Sonia Yancheva wrote on Instagram, quote, I'm so, so, so sorry I can't perform tonight for the last Otello at the Met Opera. A couple of hours ago at home, I was preparing for the show when suddenly I collapsed. I felt very weak, and I will certainly need a few days to recover. Thank you so much for your understanding. Exit stage right, Theo Adam, the German opera singer renowned for his Wagner roles. The bass baritone died Thursday at a care home in his hometown of Dresden at 92. He made his debut at the Staatsoper in Dresden in 49 before joining the Berlin State Opera in 1952. And, of course, he regularly appeared at the Bayreuth Festival. And on this day, January 14th, it was the premiere of Puccini's Tosca, in 1900 in Rome. It's the 62nd birthday of tenor Ben Hepner, the 68th birthday of early opera conductor Nicholas McGeegan, and the anniversary of Canadian baritone Louis Kelico. That was in 1925 when he was born, and he also fathered the heartthrob baritone Gino Quilico. That's your two-minute drill.
Ah, Maria Callas singing Visitarte from Puccini's Tosca, getting us going. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR with George Cedarquist and Tobias Wright. Uh, George, Tosca was the first opera that I saw. Okay. And when I saw it, it was at the Lyric Opera of Kansas City. And I couldn't see any of the text because I was sitting underneath the mezzanine. And it's like an old opera house in downtown Kansas City. This is before they built the new Kaufman Center. And so I spent the... I did. I read, obviously, the synopsis. But I remember being so like, oh, my God, this is amazing. <laughs> and I had no idea what anybody said. <laughs> uh, is that how you describe your Christmas? No, I know what people said at Christmas. Oh, it was dear. No, so I went home. It was the first time that myself, all of my siblings, significant others... Nephews, everybody. We were in the same place since 2013. I have a big family. Right. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> it was loud. Uh, my sister bought a handle of Fireball, and there were many Fireball shots. That was they, she. It was secretly Fireballed shot. That was her mo for the. It was a good time though. Good time was had by all. I'm so thrilled to read about this article that um, Neil Gorin, who's a colleague of mine, is back. When Gotham Chamber Opera finished very suddenly, probably, I don't know, five years ago maybe, it was a real shock to the system because in New York City, it was kind of the premier micro-opera company. I mm-hmm. mean, it had a budget of millions of dollars, mm-hmm. less than $10 million probably, I'm just guessing. But but it was like yeah and this was as new york city opera was starting to collapse as well and then gotham chamber opera sort of went poof how great that they are back i will say to think of robert wilson um creating a staging for giancarlo Menotti's amal and the night visitors that is so utterly bizarre i can't <laughs> even tell you robert wilson is one of the most strange and uh Tour like of directors of the 20th century. I almost said autistic, which is not what I meant. Mm. I mean, he might be, but... Can't do that. Anyway. Um, how about this new uh, HQ at Seattle Opera? You know what that says to me? is You know, Seattle Opera is one of the few companies, um, you know, in the last decade in the United States that's been able to successfully pull off repeatedly ring cycles. So you know that they have an operating budget that's substantial. They get the best singers that they can get. Um, and... What's wonderful about that is you know they're taking care of their artists, but they're also doing well enough now to take care of the people behind the scenes. And that's a thrill. Anytime, for me personally speaking, anytime that you see infrastructure being built for opera companies, that bodes well for the business. And that's what my takeaway is for a 105,000 square foot um, new headquarter and also transparency, inviting in the surrounding community. So any again, I, that makes me thrilled for the people working there because it makes their lives better. Absolutely. When you see an opera company investing in real estate, which is something that Pittsburgh Opera, to its credit, did some years ago and and renovated an old factory to make it its HQ, it's a great sign for that company. Of course, this idea of transparency was recently done at the Royal Opera House, Mm -hmm. where they found a way to get the public into rehearsals, get them eating and drinking in lobbies and lounges so they could see opera singers. Um, Are they going to rehearsals? No, they're not going to the rehearsals. The rehearsal room is always going to be a private affair. But at Seattle, watching people work in the costume shop, seeing performances, taking part in lectures is a real way forward, Mm -hmm. I think. Absolutely. Also, I'll just say this. Transparency, 
I like working it out for companies that have an open rehearsal policy. You know what I mean? Is that weird for you? It's it's weird. As a director, it's it's weird. Um, because, I don't know, man. You want to say what you want to say? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Why, why do you like it? I mean, it's kind of cool. Here, as a sports fan, have you ever attended a... A practice for a D one football team or basketball team, or, no, or go to like a, like a Blackhawks practice or something. Never fascinating. I mean, it's incredible to get a, a peek behind the curtain, so to speak. Or the the one time that I watched the University of Kansas basketball team practice was eye opening. And I mean, I don't have any illusions. I know that coaches, it's a high pressure business. They're making millions of dollars, and these athletes obviously aren't, but they're getting the exposure to the NBA and and foreign leagues, you can't mess up. And it's kind of cool to see that. It's kind of cool to see the process behind it all. So I, as someone who was an athlete and is a performer, it's kind of, whatever, come come check it out. Come check us out. (laughs) I love this idea that uh, at the Hamburg State Opera, first of all, that they're doing Verdi's Nabucco, which has never been more timely if you're living in Europe, if you're living in the U.S. Uh, But even more so that they put out a call for refugees to be part of the production, specifically in the chorus. Mm -hmm. The chorus of Hebrew slaves. Exactly, exactly, Vapensiero, right. And this is something that I've actually seen elsewhere in Germany. It must be something about that country's past, its history, that... They have a real mission, a real proclivity to try and get refugees involved in the arts. I have so many comments to that. Yeah. I mean, just historically speaking about Germany, obviously. But, you know, in this particular instance, what's also interesting is uh, the director, Serebrenikov, who is himself in isolation, who can't leave, who doesn't, who's under house arrest in Russia, who doesn't have internet access, who was recently uh, directing a show in Switzerland via jump drives and iPads. And I mean, so still to have, and we spoke about this on the show, art will survive because people will do whatever it takes to make it happen. And so I think that story is at play here and people doing whatever it takes to make life happen. That's these refugees who are fleeing. And I mean... I don't know. There is a part, and this we've talked about this on the show as well, where inmates have been used for choruses, and there's a little bit of that. You're like, meh. That was the production in New York. I came down really hard on that. There was something about that that rubbed me the wrong way. What's the word I'm looking for? That this story coming out of Hamburg does not rub me the wrong way. Is it because of the uh, the content? I think Be so. Being that it is Nabucco? I think so, yeah. Hmm. I, I mean, it... I, I, the music, what, what is Vapienser? Let's, uh, o mia patria si bella e perduta, o membranza si care fata. Oh, my country is so beautiful and lost. I mean, that's what these refugees are going to be singing about. Talking like that, Tobias, there's no way that men from Boston wouldn't think that you were a native Chinese <laughs> speaker. I know you're not a native Chinese speaker. I am not. Though... I really want to watch this show. Hell yeah. Super vocal. Hell yeah. Well, okay, so to every singer who listens to our show, how many times has someone st- stupidly been like, are you going to be on American Idol? No, I'm not. I'm going to go try and get a contract with my master's degree. But then, 
we have a show that's American Idol for opera singers, and it's in China, so it's not American Idol, and I'm an idiot. But point being, sorry, I got really worked up about that because the number of, if I had a dollar for every time somebody asked me if I was going to be on American Idol, my student loans would be substantially less. Good for you. Has there ever been an opera singer on one of those like uh, pop yeah, talent like, show? Yeah, because like you know, like the Paul Potts, like Britain's Got Talent. You know, he goes and he sings his one aria, and people are like, "Oh, that's incredible!" And really, he's not that good. Mm-hmm. But this, uh, crossing pop culture into classical music. I mean, they're gonna whoever wins this is like, uh, it's awesome. Had this been a thing, I don't know, I probably would have done it. There's a great. Fo- I'm an attention whore, though, so I'm going to put a, a link to this on the website operaboxscore.com. There's a great photo for this article. I think this is from a production of Lucia di La Memor. Just a total guess. You can you can look at the photo <laughs> and you tell me what what opera you think it's from. I wonder if there's a way to watch this. Oh, it's got it. If it, we'll find it, we'll find it and we'll plug it because it's awesome. But what's great about this too is that. Um, this show is promoting so many different types of music. So it's promoting Western opera. Mm-hmm. It's promoting... Musicals. Chinese musicals. Mm-hmm. Like contemporary composers in China who are doing musicals. And it's also promoting like classic... Yeah, you're going to have to forgive my, opera. forgive my ignorance here, but it blew my mind that like Traviata didn't get performed in China until 1952. What? I, I guess I didn't realize that, oh, God, I'm so ignorant, but that Western opera and especially, like, music theater, you know, it talked about Phantom of the Opera, that those things are still so, so in their infancy with popularity in China. I mean, this is what a great opportunity that these young people have, and most of them were very, very uh, tuned into this fact. They have a chance to grow their art form. And they were most excited about that. And some of them are reluctant for the publicity because of their private lives being infiltrated or whatever. But they, they decided to do that because they deci- they know that they have an audience that will be enthralled with this. And they're, so far, they're right. A big disabled list this week. Rolando Villazon, he's uh, been ordered to rest until March 20 because of a gastroenterological complaint. I don't even know what that means. It, it's... it's Stomach stuff. Yeah, right. And, you know, I remember when I was a, a personal assistant on one show to one director at the Met uh, in when I was in grad school. And Viazon was, was singing um, in... It was Lucia, actually. He was singing Edgardo. And and he had problems then. He had problems He's over always, 10 years ago. The thing about... He... Uh, I love Rolando Viazon. And as a young singer... You know, going back 10 years ago, he's been one of my favorites just because of his spirit. Um, But since I discovered who he was, there have been health issues, there have been cancellations, there's been vocal issues. And not all of them are vocal issues, but it's just like, at this point, when it happens this much, you just, you're rooting for the person. You're like, man, I hope, I want your health for you. Are we going to see an Andy Murray moment here? Uh, When he decides to quit? I don't know. I don't think he'll ever decide to quit. He's so intelligent and so loved, and I don't think people are holding this against him. I mean, you look—he's making important directorial debuts. True. Um, that, I mean, I think that speaks to who his spirit is. And so, no, I don't think he quits. I think he wants to be a part of the fabric of opera. And then also on the DL, 
Sonia Yancheva did a slightly bizarre post on Instagram. I am so, so, so sorry I can't perform. Uh, a couple of hours ago at home, I was preparing for the show when suddenly I collapsed. I feel weak. It's interesting that she went to Instagram. Uh, That's what I thought. I hope she called like her manager, too. Yeah. <laughs> that link was on was through um, Parterre, which was the website we talked about on last week's show as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it seems odd that she would like do it on Instagram. Does Instagram have to be pictures, or can it just be words? It can be words. It can be text. It can be... I mean, yeah, it can be whatever, but shows you how. Well, it's it's a, out of the loop. It's I a am quick way to reach your followers. I mean, I could say that, and you know, if people are going to see her at the show, they want to know. You know, I guess it's a more personal way of canceling rather than just not showing up. Well, you definitely don't want to just not show up. That's for sure. Teo Adam, let's listen to a little bit of him singing one of those renowned Wagner roles. Box score. Theo Adam singing Les Vols du Kunis, Herrliches Kind from Die Valkyra. That was live from Bayreuth in 1967. Carl Böhm conducting. Good show, man. I had fun. Very intimate little show. A couple was... words from Oliver via yeah. the rundown. We're missing but... Matt. He's outperforming in the big world. Good for him. Yeah, he's doing really well. Um... Weston, providing for his family of little Westons. I don't know that Weston has little Westons. He doesn't. I just like to say things like that. Oliver's, no, got, a, good, good. Oliver's got a good call. He says, if you're in New York this weekend, check out Frison on Saturday, January 19th at 4.30 p.m. at the Arate Venue and Gallery. Frison's inaugural production and project is a short film called Leraclito Amoroso. That was great, George. <laughs> I'm a native speaker, too. It combines an aria by female Italian composer Barbara Strozzi with pole dancing. Friends of the show are Elise Kasek, Mathen Black, and Dylan Zauerwald, among others. They collaborated on the film, and you're going to have to check it out yourself to see which one of them does the pole dancing. I pray that it's not Mathen. I pray that it is. The only person in the world with worse back hair than me. What's your good call or bad call? Um, my good call, I did see Cendrillon at the Lyric Opera of Chicago this last week. I know we reviewed it on the show, but it was nice to see a production that doesn't... Um, it was the same production that they did at the Met a few years ago, but a show that doesn't normally get done. And I mean, it's Massonet, there's beautiful music. Um, I enjoyed it. I had a good time. And then I'm seeing Bohem this week. Uh, they're into their winter section now, the Lyric is. So I'm going to see Bohem this week and then... I'm going to be going to the Lyric as well for the first time this season, actually. Strauss's Electra opens there February 2nd. I'll probably go see a Monday night performance. Nina Stemma is in yep. the title role. Nina Stemma. Cannot wait 
for that. Wishing you all the best with the Chiefs oh, this man. Sunday against the Pats. One win from the Super Bowl. It's hard. It's weird to say that. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about Opera. The general manager at WNUR is John Williams. No, not that John Williams. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho for co-host Tobias Wright. I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera all bundled up now that it got cold again. This is the weirdest winter weather ever. We're back on Monday, January 21st at 9 p.m. Central. We're joined live in studio by conductor Alexandra Enyart. We'll be talking to her about a new project at Thompson Street Opera called Faulty Systems. Plus, you're going to get all your opera headlines and our hot takes. Join us.